The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Turn to the book of Ruth. And I'm going to spend one week in Ruth. We're going to cover the whole story. And the reason is, is because I think that as a story, it's, it's really one unit. It's so well written. It has, uh, it really tells like a story. And I think uh, teaching uh, men to be pastors at the seminary, it's made me sensitive to this idea that sometimes we can do expository preaching verse by verse in such a way that we lose sort of the duh moment of the fact that Ruth is a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And if I took 12 weeks to preach through Ruth, you might miss actually the story of it. And so I have, uh, I want to I begin by having you turn to the book of Judges. Chapter 2. Judges chapter 2. It's towards the front of your Bible after uh, Joshua judges Ruth. Joshua's a pretty judgmental guy, I guess. He uh, judges Ruth, but Judges is the book right before Ruth. Chapter 2, verse 10. It says, all that generation, that generation of Joshua who had taken the promised land. All of that generation were gathered to their fathers. I'm in chapter two, verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So it goes on in in this chapter to say that the people forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought him up out of Egypt. How do you not know about the Exodus? We've all seen Charlton Heston. How do you not know about it? But that generation didn't know. They forgot the Lord. They followed and worshipped various gods around them, that chapter says. They provoked the Lord to anger. As a result, the people experienced great distress because the Lord sent enemies against them. And then what happened is in their distress, the people cried out to the Lord. And in their response, the Lord raised up judges. Basically rescuing leaders, heroes, who would rise up and save them out of the hand of their enemies And then when the judge died, the people returned to their rebellious ways, forsaking the Lord. And so in the book of Judges, there is just this rinse, wash, repeat cycle of the people's idolatry, the Lord raising up a hero, a judge, the judge delivering, the judge then dying, and the people going back to their rebellion. And turn over to Judges 21. It's actually the very last verse of the book. And you'll notice in your Bible, the next page is Ruth. And Ruth takes place during this time of the judges. But this is the verdict in Joshua, I mean judges rather, Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, Ruth tells a great story. I just watched the Bible project this week. It's seven-minute little animation of the book of Ruth. It was amazing. I wanted to show it to you, but I got to go through the whole book. And I didn't want to, you know, us preachers, we don't want to take time out of our preaching. But it was really good. Go look it up on YouTube. Ruth in the Bible project tells the whole story. But this story is set within a larger story of redemption. And it's kind of like if you only read two, book two of a three-part trilogy, like the two towers in the Lord of the Rings, you get a really good story, but you miss the bigger picture. And, and what I want to do for you is not only tell you the story of Ruth, but tell you the bigger picture as well. You see, there was no king in Israel in those days, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. But Israel knew that there was a promise of one who was going to come. There was a deliverer, a hero, a Messiah who was going to come. And the people of that day, the devout ones knew that this hero, this Messiah was going to come from the line of Judah. And he was going to be a king. Because they knew God had promised it in Genesis. And that this king who was going to come, this Messiah from the line of Judah, according to Genesis 49 that the scepter will never depart from his hand. This one is 
the son of the woman in Genesis 3 who's going to crush the head of the serpent and restore everything that was lost in the fall. But as these people were looking around at their land and there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, I'm sure that every time a judge was raised up like Samson or Gideon or Ehud, he was left-handed. I like him the best. I'm left-handed. They wondered, I'm sure, is this the Messiah? Is this the hero? Is this going to be the Savior who's going to restore? And then the judge would die. And the people would return to their idolatry and do what's right in their own eyes. And so the, question, the answer was no. But here we have in the story of Ruth, a story that ends with a genealogy pointing to this future king that's promised. And so we want to see in the book of Ruth, first we want to see that God is the hero. We want to see God's providence. He's hardly mentioned in the book. But he's the hero. And he is providentially working in Ruth's life, in Naomi's life, in Boaz's life, to not only accomplish his plans for them, as we heard in Psalm 30, that his anger is but for a moment, but his his favor and his joy is for a lifetime. But we also see that he is providentially working through them to bring about his promises to bring the king, the hero, the Messiah, who we know is Jesus. We also see in the book of Ruth that God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. He uses people of no reputation. Ruth was a nobody. She was a Moabite. She was a foreigner. She was a refugee who had come back to Bethlehem on the coattails of her mother-in-law with no hope of being provided for financially and with all of the expectation that she would be outcast by the people since she was a foreigner and a refugee. And yet God uses crooked sticks, people of no reputation. And it shows us the heart of God through this man Boaz, who was a nobody. He was a farmer in Bethlehem, a town of no reputation, five miles outside of Jerusalem. And yet he's hospitable and he welcomes the foreigners and the refugees, the widows and the orphans. This is the heart of God, true religion. And as a result, we see the transformation of a people, transformation of Ruth, transformation of Boaz. Most importantly, we're gonna see the transformation of Naomi, And ultimately, we're going to see God's provision of a redeemer, a deliverer, of which Boaz is a type. So let's look at this. Really, the book of Ruth is set in four acts, and the four chapters correspond very nicely to the four acts of the book of Ruth. And in the first act, on the opening pages, we see the crisis. Ruth, chapter 1, verses... Let's go ahead and read chapter 1, and then I'll walk through it. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons, and the name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These two, these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's stop right there. The story opens in Bethlehem, an insignificant town five miles south of Jerusalem. By the way, Bethlehem means house of bread, which is important in this story, I think. Because there's a famine in the land. There's no bread in the house of bread. The house is empty. And Elimelech and his family decide to go to Moab. Rather than stay in the land and wait upon the deliverance of God and his provision, they go over to Moab. Much like Abraham went down to Egypt in the book of Genesis. And we know from the the law that was given at Sinai that when there's famine in the land, it's because of the judgment of God. And the reason the people were being judged is because it's the time of the judges and everyone was doing right what was right in their own eyes rather than what was right in God's eyes. 
And so they make a faithless decision to go down to Moab. Have you ever done that? Have you made a faithless decision? A job change? A marriage? A divorce? A move? A change of churches? You name it. Done not in prayer, done not seeking the will of the Lord, but done just simply because you want to do it. And you're determined to do what's right in your own eyes. Sometimes our decisions have had devastating consequences in our lives. Like Naomi here, she lost her husband and her two sons in Moab. She lost her ability to provide for herself. She lost her ability for security and protection. And she had no choice but to return home. And sometimes we're tempted to believe that because of our unfaithfulness in our past, we've lost any opportunity to participate in God's plan, in God's program for the future. In fact, we're going to see Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because I'm bitter. My whole life is bitterness and failure. And I don't have any hope. Today we're going to see in the book of Ruth we're going to begin to see this grace of God against the backdrop of that kind of pain and suffering. This is real pain and suffering. This isn't just happy feelings, all things happen for a reason, sort of general things that we can sort of say that are just pipe dreams. This is hope in the midst of real sorrow and suffering and bitterness and devastation. And God is able to restore the years the locusts have eaten. And so this family goes down. And this must have been a desperate act. They must have been on the verge of starving to death. Because the way the Jewish people viewed the Moabites was they had contempt for their origins. In Genesis 19, the Moabites come from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. And so they detested the Moabites because of their origins, the Jewish people. They also detested them because when they went to go into the promised land, the Moabites fought them in Numbers 22. And in Numbers 25, Moabite women seduced Israelite men and the Israelites were punished as a result. And so in Deuteronomy 23, the law says Moabites are to be excluded from the assembly of the Lord. And even more recently, in the time of Judges, Judges 3, King Eglon of Moab, he's actually called Fat King Eglon of Moab, he had oppressed the people, he had invaded Israel, and God raised up that left-handed Benjamite Ehud. And he went into the presence of Eglon, and he slew Eglon. He hid a dagger on his left side and stuck it in his belly, and the Bible says the fat rolled up over the hilt of the blade, and he died. That is graphic. And so there was this recent conflict. And, in the, and so for Elimelech and his family to go down to Moab, it must have been desperate indeed to go there, to that country where they hated one another. And they arrive there, and shortly after they arrive, Elimelech dies. And they're still living there. Her sons are working. They end up taking Moabite wives, which was actually contrary to the law in Deuteronomy 7. And for 10 years, these wives could not bear children. And for a Jewish woman, especially a Jewish woman who was of the line of Judah, who knew that one of these descendants was going to be the Messiah, in Jewish culture, for a Jewish woman to be barren was seen as being cursed by the Lord. Because the promises of God couldn't be fulfilled. And so not only... Do they marry Moabite women, but for 10 years, neither one of these women can have children to pass on the family line. The sons die with no heirs, which is also a sign of judgment. And so this is the setting. This is the crisis. What are they going to do? Because if they stay in Moab, it's just her and her two daughters-in-law, and they're going to be taken advantage of. They're not going to have a place to work. No one is going to befriend them. And they have no descendants who they can even raise to to take on the family name and carry it on. Verse 6 of chapter 1. She, Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. 
For she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should say I have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Well, what is the response to this crisis? Naomi hears back in her homeland of Bethlehem that the famine is over, that there's food again, and she thinks, I can return home. It's going to be an embarrassment. It's going to be humbling. It's going to be degrading because I left with a husband and sons and I'm returning home barren and alone with no prospects. But she says at least there's food. And she determines to return home. And in the midst of hearing about this food, she completely misses the grace of God. I mean, think about this. She heard the news in the midst of her grief that there was food. She heard that Yahweh intervened on behalf of his people and restored the land from the famine. And she's part of his people. And she should have remembered that Yahweh keeps his covenant with his people. She had heard that God had given them bread, that that Bethlehem, the house of bread, is restocked. The cabinets are full, as it were. The pantry's full of bread, and yet she doesn't see any of that. She says, the hand of the Lord's against me. She says, my daughters-in-law, you've been so good to me, but you lost your husbands. And I don't want the hand of the Lord to be against you, so why don't you go back to be with your family and find a husband and remarry? And in the first interchange, in verses 6 to 10, Naomi says, return to the security of your father's home. But they actually say, no, we want to go with you. And so then in 11 to 14, in the second interchange, Naomi reminds them of their chances for remarriage. If you go with me to Bethlehem, you're a Moabite and no one's going to marry you. In Bethlehem, in in Judea, in Judah, you have no hope of being married because it's against our law and against our custom and we hate your people. Go back to your father's house, at least there you'll have a chance. She said, even if I could have another child, if I could raise him to be be an adult so that you could marry them, are you really going to wait 16 years, 17 years, 18 years, even if I has a husband tonight? She tells him, no, go back. That's the logical, that's the sane thing to do. She knows they're going to be outcasts and foreigners. She believes God is against her and against anyone she loves. After all, death and sorrow have surrounded her. And in doing so, she convinces Orpah. And I don't think we need to be critical and judge Orpah. The story's not about Orpah. We don't know her heart. I don't know that we need to be critical and say she lacked faith. She should have gone with Naomi rather She listened to the common sense of her mother-in-law. But here Ruth is determined to swim upstream, as it were. And so there's another exchange. And this time, rather than Naomi's voice dominating the conversation, now Ruth's voice dominates. Ruth clings to her. Verse 15, she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to the people, to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you. Or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Wow. Wow. 
And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. You see here, we see Ruth being loyal, loyal to Naomi, loyal to her family, loyal to to this, this vision to return to Bethlehem, faith overcoming bitterness and sorrow and doubt. With radical self-sacrifice, Ruth abandons every base of security that any person, let alone a poor widow in that culture, would have clung to. Her own people, her own family, to go into a foreign country where she knows she's going to be an outcast. And yet she even rejects her own gods and embraces the God of Israel. She says, your God will be my God. Where you go, I will go. It's incredible. Verse 19, so the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Naomi and Ruth, their return causes a buzz. The whole town was stirred up. It's a little town outside of Jerusalem. It's a farming town. And they see Naomi come in with this Moabite woman and the gossip starts. Is this Naomi? What happened to her? Look at how she's aged. Where is her husband? Where are her boys? Who is this woman? Why does she have a Moabite with her? Naomi is haggard and destitute and Ruth is a foreigner. And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And she actually makes four accusations against God here. Against this one in the text who is El Shaddai, who is Almighty Sovereign One. See, she's really complaining about his sovereignty by calling him El Shaddai. She's complaining about how he's run her life and what he's allowed to come in to her life and where she's at right now. She says, He made my life bitter. That's the first accusation. The second one, he took my fullness. He took my fullness, my husband, my sons. He took everything that made me happy and gave me joy and filled me up. He took them. And the third thing she says is, he made me empty. He made me empty of joy. He made me empty of children. He made me empty of food. He made me empty of everything. And I have nothing And then she says, he afflicted me. He set his face against me. He caused this calamity everywhere. And at the end of act one, two questions arise. Will Naomi be filled again? And what part does Ruth play? After all, she's just been tagging along. You know, when I was young, I was judgmental of Naomi's attitude, of her sorrow and her bitterness. As I get older, I just want to weep with those who weep. As I've seen what this world does, this fallen world to people, as I see what the Lord allows in people's lives, and sometimes they don't have a godly response, and yet God uses it to bring them back to himself, I'm amazed. But the question that arises, we don't know the answer yet, you do if you've read it, but we don't know the answer yet is, what, will Naomi actually be filled again or will she remain bitter? Maybe you're like that this morning. Maybe the Lord has taken your fullness from you. And you're sitting here and you resonate with that. You're like, that's me. The Lord has put his hand against me and everywhere I turn, I hit a roadblock. And the Lord's taken his fullness from me and I have nothing. That's the question you're asking yourself is, will I ever be filled again? Will the Lord ever fill me again? And in this plot, the other question is, what part does Ruth play in this? Well, we'll see. Act 2 opens to a ray of hope. There's just a sliver. There's a sliver of hope in Act 2. 
There's a new setting. Chapter 1, verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem, and they came at the beginning of barley harvest. So there's a new setting. Naomi and Ruth need food. Providentially, it's the beginning of barley harvest, late April, early May by our calendar. And here in chapter 2, verse 1, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man, A worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And so in this new setting, a new character is introduced, Boaz. A relative of Naomi's husband. This is important. An important detail. The original hearers, when they heard that there was a Jewish kinsman relative who was close enough to be a kinsman redeemer... A potential husband for Ruth, the readers, the audience, the initial audience would have said, oh, there's a ray of hope. A man was introduced into the story. It's like Disney introducing the prince. Or even the scoundrel who later becomes the prince. There's a ray of hope. Secondly, he's called in the ESV here, he's called a worthy man. It's actually this, this Hebrew phrase, Ishkivor Hail, this idea of a mighty man of valor, a mighty hero, a noble warrior. It was used of David's mighty men of old. The ironic thing, though, is this guy's a farmer. He's a farmer, and he's an older man, and we don't get any impression that he's done any mighty deeds of valor, and yet he's called a worthy man, a noble man. And so he never fights in a battle. He never leads an army. He never performs any heroic feats. He's a farmer. And so the audience would be thinking, how in the world is this man going to be a hero? How is he a man of noble character? The story goes on, verse 2. Ruth said, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go into the field and glean among the ears of grain after him. In whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Just happened to do it. Who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz happened to come from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? I mean, he might not have said it that way, but. The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she's continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Incredible initiative. Ruth making good on her promise. Where you go, I will go. I will never depart from you and never leave you. And she's determined to provide And so in the providence of God, as she goes out to glean, she knows about this custom of being able to glean the extras off of a field that's been harvested. And she comes in the providence of God to no other field than the field of Boaz. And we see the grace of Boaz as he comes. He speaks to the harvesters. And in God's providence, Ruth is gleaning right when Boaz arrives in the field. And Boaz is revealed to be a devout man. He, he tells his workers, Yahweh be with you. And, and Boaz notices her. Whose woman is this? And so then, after the initial counter, presumably Ruth goes back out to glean. And when it's time, he calls her in back out from the field. Verse 14, at mealtime, Boaz says to her, come here and eat some bread. Dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers. He passed her her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. And so from the first time Boaz opens his mouth until the last words, his tone exudes compassion and grace and generosity And actually, in this man who speaks to this Moab, Moabite field worker, biblical has said, covenant love, steadfast love is on display. Boaz offers his protection. 
to her. He offers his resources to her. He says, don't leave my fields. Don't go into some other field. Someone might rape you, take advantage of you, beat you, harass you. Stick with my female servants, follow them, do what they do. Don't worry about any harassment from my male servants. This is like the first anti-sexual harassment policy in history right here in Ruth. And he says, drink freely of the water my men have drawn. And in that culture, women were to draw water for men. For him to say, go ahead and drink of the water my men have drawn, he was offering his protection and his resources. And Ruth is amazed. You see, this is, this is the mark of a man who doesn't just know the law of God in his head. He has it written on his heart. He's the one who looks after the fatherless and the widow and the alien, the foreigner among them. And although this foreman had not identified Ruth by name, as soon as he identified her by status, she's the Moabite woman who came with Naomi, the lights went on to Boaz. And the reports he had heard emphasized two details about her in particular. Verse 17, she gleans until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. See, Boaz's workers were not to physically or threaten her or shame her psychologically. They weren't to make comments about her alien status as a foreigner and a refugee just because she's forced to go begging in fields for what she might glean. This gives us a picture of Boaz and it begins to answer the question, what kind of mighty man is he? What kind of worthy man is he? Noble man is he? He's a potential kinsman redeemer. Look again at chapter 2, verse 20, when Naomi says, this man is a close relative of ours and one of our redeemers. It's a phrase, goel, in the Hebrew, which means a kinsman redeemer, one who's near enough to deliver. It's a near relative who's responsible for the economic well-being of their relatives. It comes into play, especially when a relative is in distress and cannot get out of the crisis themselves. It ensured, according to Leviticus 25, that hereditary property never left the clan. It maintains freedom for individuals who might have sold themselves into slavery. In Leviticus 25 and Numbers 35, kinsmen redeemers were supposed to go track down and execute murderers of their own relatives. They were like bounty hunters sometimes. In Numbers 5, they received restitution money when their relatives were uh, deceased. And in Job, they ensured that justice was served in a lawsuit when one of their relatives was involved. This is what a redeemer did. He was a protector and a provider and a deliverer. He was a hero. And when Naomi learns that Ruth has met up with Boaz, you begin to see this ray of hope. The sun once again rises in her life. Yahweh has been gracious to her deceased husband and her sons by sending a potential kinsman redeemer, Goel. The wheels are turning in her mind. What more will Boaz do? And the fact that Boaz says, stay with me until the end of harvest for these six or seven weeks. Naomi, the the wheels are spinning. What more will Boaz do? He's helped economically, but there's nothing that will alleviate the real problem, which is no heirs, no male heirs. Will he do more? That's the question at the end of chapter two, act two. Into act three, we see the complication The plot thickens. 
chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself. Put on your cloak. Go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. The first complication is this scheme that Naomi hatches. I mean, this is, I guess, one way to get a man. I would not recommend it. But the scheme is basically this. Several weeks have passed. Now is the time for winnowing and storage. Obviously, Boaz hadn't been making any moves during those seven weeks towards marriage. So Ruth's mother-in-law says, I'm going to take it upon myself, as every good mother-in-law does. Boaz was working overtime to winnow and to store everything for harvest. Because of that, he'd end up sleeping at work. And the, and the winnowing floor, it was this outcropping of rock outside of a hilltop, which was the best place to thresh. So he was sleeping outside on top of a rock at this place that was known where he was winnowing. And Ruth was to take off her widow's garments, her garments of mourning she was to wash. She was to put on perfume and clothes that would let Boaz know, hey, my grieving is over. I'm available. Make a move, buddy. Ask me to marry you. The plan was a huge gamble because even in this culture, that was not the right way to go about it. It wasn't like there was, you know, these uh, rules for dating that said, oh, this is the proper way to go get a husband. This was a huge gamble. We'll see why in a moment. It also was a huge act of faith. So she goes down, verse 6, she went down to the threshing floor, did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. And she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled. And he turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow tansmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. See, in that cultural context, in that spiritual context, Boaz could wake up in the middle of the night and he could misinterpret Ruth's overtures. Not for marriage, but simply for sex. He could think in his grogginess that she's just a common prostitute. After all, the events described occur in the dark days of the judges. If you read the book of Judges, that's what the men were doing. He could wake up and interpret Ruth's actions as those of a prostitute, but then because he's a worthy man, he could, as a virtuous Israelite, he could push her away and call her an immoral woman with whom he'd have nothing to do. Her reputation was at stake. But what he does do in the providence of God is he recognizes the true meaning of her actions and he responds favorably to her. And, and this is really incredible because when Ruth says, I will do all that you command, Naomi, you have to ask, who is this woman, Ruth? How is she, how is she so remarkable? After all, she's just a lowly servant. And Boaz is a master of his house, a farmer. She's an uninvited visitor on his turf. She's a woman. He's a man. She's a foreigner. He's a native. And yet she uncovers his legs and she says to him, be my goel, be my redeemer. In other words, marry me. She doesn't even wait for him to ask. She says, marry me, be my goel, be my kinsman redeemer. And who is Boaz? What kind of man will he be? Instead of cursing her as a prostitute, he blesses her. He praises her for her covenant love, her steadfast faithfulness to Naomi. 
her has said, he praises her for not going after other men. See, if Ruth would have married for status, she would have gone after a young man. If she would have married for love, she would have gone after a poor man. If she would have married for wealth, she would have gone after a rich man. And Boaz praises her for not going after any of them, but waiting for him. Ruth wants to marry in order to care for Naomi and to continue the family line. This is why Boaz calls her an Isha Gibor Chayil, a mighty noble woman, a hero. It's the same phrase. So here in this story, you have two heroes, Boaz and Ruth. And Boaz then says, I will become your servant. I will do what you ask. He says, but there is another one. There's a kinsman redeemer, a goel who's closer to you. And if he marries you, I'm going to let him marry you. It displays his noble character. And you can't help but see God's providence in his reaction. He wakes up and there's a woman there. And he can't see in the dark who it is. But this is God who's ultimately the hero in this story. Well, what are the results? Verse 16, when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Naomi receives the gift of grain from Boaz through Ruth, and Naomi's Emptiness is being filled more and more. Her confidence in the providence of God is beginning to be restored. She says, wait, because this is the kind of man who's not going to put it off. He's going to handle the matter. He's going to handle it immediately. So chapter 4 is the rescue. Verses 1 to 17 is the rescue. The next morning, Boaz makes sure everything is in order to care for the mother. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and he sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz has spoken came by. Just so happened to come by. Every time that word behold is used, it's... Imagine that. As Boaz is sitting in the city gate, it just so happens that the guy who's closer happens to walk through the gate. And he says, hey, come here. I got to talk to you. Don't leave. Boaz says, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city. And he said, sit down here. I don't know if he said it like that, but sit down. We're going to deal with this. They sat down. He said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people, if you will redeem it. Redeem it, but if you will not, tell me that I may know. For there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And the Redeemer said, oh, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So the other kinsman redeemer is providentially seen passing through the gate, told to sit down. Ten elders are summoned to hear the case. He sits down. The situation is explained and asks if he will redeem it. And the guy says, well, of course I want land. I'll be glad to take the land. Oh, there's a woman who comes with it. And she's a Moabite and she's a widow. And you have to marry her to make sure that her family line is continued. And he goes, time out. I don't want anything to do with that deal. And I think Boaz knew that was going to be the answer, but he did the right thing. He handled it properly. Now, this was the custom in former times, verse 7, in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. 
Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have brought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and they named him Oved. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. The blessing of the People is an amazing example of divinely inspired blessing that Yahweh would grant this foreign woman, Ruth, a place among the matriarchs of Israel alongside Rachel and Leah, that Yahweh would build a dynasty from Boaz and Ruth. Little did they know it'd be an eternal one, that their name would be renowned in Bethlehem. That, that what Boaz did, that that would go down in the history of Bethlehem and that his name would be remembered. Little did he know that it would go out throughout the world through David to Christ. That Yahweh would continue to bless the house of Judah and that he did. And we see the name of King David there and ultimately King Jesus. So here at the end, the resolution, the rescue, Ruth has been filled with food and a husband And a son, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4. And it's from the Lord. The Lord opened her womb. And while married for 10 years to Malin, she could not conceive. Now Yahweh's given her the gift of a son. And in turn, Naomi is filled as well. Her bitterness is gone, replaced by joy, by Yahweh, who is the restorer of life and the nourisher of old age. Joel 2.25 says, God will restore the years the locusts have eaten. And if you are in that situation this morning, his anger is but for a moment, but his mercy is for a lifetime. And so if you feel like the, the, the darkness will not lift, oh, would you hope in the Lord that his mercy is forever and that he has you right where he wants you because he wants to pursue his purposes in your life. He wants to restore your joy. He wants to be glorified. And if he hasn't taken you home yet, he's still got use for you. He wants to use you for his kingdom. But the story doesn't end there. The epilogue is the royal line. Verses 18 to 21. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. In the mind of the narrator, the story doesn't end with the resolution of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. He widens the camera to the greater promises of Scripture, reaching a milestone in David, but ultimately it points to Christ. No kings, no judges of Ruth's day did. There were no kings in Ruth's day and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And here at the end of the story, we see King David, a man after God's own heart. The mighty heroes that God uses to preserve the chosen promised line of the Messiah is not a mighty man with a sword. It is a noble Moabite woman and a godly farmer from Bethlehem. God uses crooked sticks. And Romans says these things are written for our example. You see, God is still the hero. He sent his son to be our kinsman redeemer, our goel. In the incarnation, he was willing and able to save. He became like us. And I just want to close by turning to 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. 
Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Has the Lord delivered you? Has this been true in your own life as well, that you were in a pit and you were in a mire and you were in the bitterness of your life and he delivered you and he restored your joy and he restored the years the locusts have eaten and he brought you to a place where you are full? You need to share that and boast in the Lord and encourage your brothers and sisters who are in the pit. We need each other as the body of Christ. That's why we come to the table now. As we have the men come forward, let me just um, close in prayer. Father, thank you for this story, this wonderful story of your redemption. You took a man, you made him ready and prepared and fit in his character for this situation of coming upon a foreign woman who's a widow. And rather than rejecting her, he protected her and provided for her and eventually married her and brought her into his family. What a picture of grace. What a picture of a redeemer. Boaz is a type of Christ. The Lord Jesus, who is our ultimate protector and provider, who brought us near and brought us into his family so that now we're your children, Father, and we have hope and we have an inheritance and we have a future. Oh, would you give my brothers and sisters great joy in your providence this morning. May they have hope that even if now they are not experiencing fullness, but rather are in the valley of the shadow of death, that you are with them. And that your rod and your staff, it comforts them. And that they will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Encourage them, I pray in Jesus' name. to this message or learn more please visit calvarytruth.org